Good morning. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving, don't you? And some of us are traveling, that's why church is kind of uh, uh, half full. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming and taking time uh, to drive slow on the snow roads and be safe when you go out. And, uh, and I'm thankful uh, last week for all of you for allowing me to stay in this country, allowing me to be part of this church family. I'm truly blessed and grateful. Um, we've been uh, studying the book of John, uh, trying to glean lessons as to justify what we believe actually is true and, and we need to find out why we believe what we believe. So we are trying to find our roots in Jesus for our belief in the book of John. But today, <clears throat> I want our attention to go towards Mark chapter 11. I'll be reading from uh, verses 12 through 24. Please follow in your Bibles. Uh, there are Bibles uh, in the uh, racks in front of you, so just uh, read there because you don't have that on the screen. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling dows and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Verse 19, when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they, were, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Verse 24, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. It's a long passage to read in English, man. <laughs> For me, I mean, some people read the whole chapter from the stage. I don't know how they do, but it's good. Well, <clears throat> when I read this passage many, many years ago, 
I felt it was not fair for Jesus to curse the fig tree just for not having a fruit on it. Honestly speaking, because I just used my common sense, I did not have internet. I did not have any commentaries like you have here. And we don't have study Bibles. All that I had was one Bible in my own language. And I was thinking, why did Jesus do that? And I was thinking probably he cursed because he was expecting the tree to be fruitful in season and out of season. And then I began to justify myself. Well, Jesus was part of the creation and he created the whole world from God's sovereign ownership perspective. He has the right to do whatever he wants to do with the creation, so therefore he did curse the tree. But as I continued to read the scripture, I began to understand the meaning of what Jesus did. That was not the way to understand the scripture, in fact, because our God is a God of justice, love, and a Lord of patience. Particularly, Jesus was an embodiment of love, compassion, and forgiveness. Then why did Jesus curse the tree when it was not the season for the tree to bear fruit? There are at least two reasons here. First is the physical appearance was deceiving for people. From an agricultural point of view, people expect trees to bear fruits in certain seasons or certain way they look and then they expect. Like for example, if you go to India in the summertime, you have mango trees. So we just walk to the mango trees expecting the fruit, even if there is a fruit or not, because of the season that calls us to believe in something. Second, it had spiritual implications as the tree symbolizes the nation of Israel. Now, from the old perspective, a deceiving tree is a distraction and disappointment for people on the wayside, if we understand it as plainly as possible. It was just standing on the wayside, distracting people. We always believe that it was just Jesus who saw the tree. Probably there were many people who walked by the same tree, were distracted and expected several fruits and then walked away in disappointment. But then when it was not the season for the fruit, why would people go even to that kind of tree? You know, Fred White and Henry Morris and other scholars, they say, most figs, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of strains of fig trees, but most fig trees grow their leaves together with the fruit buds, right? So in other words, when Bible says that Jesus saw the fig tree in leaf from a distance, he walked with the expectation that it would have any fruit there. So the tree has raised the expectation of the people by showing its leaves. Jesus knew the season. Probably he knew the season more than those people who are experts in agriculture because he created the world in its own order. But he still went there because this tree had a symptom of fruits on it. 
at least he would find some green fruit that he could eat. I don't know why he did not eat breakfast that morning. <laughs> but anyway, he went there, he did not find. And in fact, I want to tell you that it was not the season for the fruit, but at the same time, it was not the season for the leaves as well. In other words, when every tree around that tree had no leaves, this is the only tree that has leaves, giving a false hope to people, and Jesus puts an end to it so that it won't give any false hope to people on the wayside. And now second, as a prophet, Jesus wants to tell to his disciples about what's going on with God's chosen people. Because he was heading to Jerusalem that moment of time, right? If you read from the beginning of chapter 11, Jesus embarks on a journey from Bethphage, that's how they say Bethphage, no, Bethphage, which is called the place of fakes. From there, he starts his journey, and he mounts on a colt, and then he goes as a peaceful king to Jerusalem. When he was about to enter the city of Jerusalem, since it was a Passover week, so many, so many people were there. Instead of rejoicing there, he began to weep. People were shouting around him, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. But Luke says in chapter 19 of the gospel, according to Luke verse 41, Jesus wept because they failed to recognize who Jesus was. They couldn't recognize what brings peace to Jerusalem, not what brings economy to Jerusalem. Jesus knew that they were actually conducting merchandise in the temple. In fact, in John chapter 2, we see at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus went to Jerusalem and he made a whip and he threw them away and he said, do not come and you know, do business here. This is my house. But again, at the end of his three years ministry, he goes back to Jerusalem at least one last time to see if there was any improvement. But you know what happened? Because of the whole day parade with people singing Hosanna to him, it was already dark by the time he went to the temple. Everybody went home and he was probably upset and then from there he enrouted that evening to Bethany to stay with Martha, Mary and Lazarus. And next day morning, I don't know what happened, he was hangry. You know this vocabulary, right? He was hangry. And then he looks for food. One thing I always, you know, get troubled by this when, when it was said, Jesus was hungry. Why he did not say that all of them were hungry? Did Jesus skip the breakfast and they didn't ask him to eat? Or Jesus was like praying all night, like some of the scholars assume, and then um, he was thinking about Jerusalem still because he's now next day heading to Jerusalem because last night he couldn't go and meet those people and teach them. You know, Gospels mention a few times that Jesus was hungry. 
but it appears that Jesus' hunger was most of the times not a physical hunger, but a spiritual hunger. For instance, if you read John's Gospel, chapter 4, when he and his disciples walked through Samaria, and when they came to the well in the town of Sychar, he felt hungry and tired, and he sits down there. Right? You remember that? Then disciples go down to the downtown to buy some food for him. When they came back with hot dogs, chicken nuggets, french fries, and all of this, Jesus said to them, why did you bring me hot dogs? I don't eat pork. He didn't say any of those things. (laughs) He actually said, John chapter 4, verse 32, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Jesus was living by a different standard that the disciples who stayed with him, slept with him, walked with him, did not even recognize the standard, the spiritual standard of Jesus. And then they thought someone else could have brought food for him. And then he tells to his disciples, In chapter 4, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his task. You know, his hunger was satisfied when the Samaritan woman comes there with desperate need for love, desperate need for forgiveness, and then he tells, I am offering you I am here to offer you the living water. And he stretches his out, stretches out his love and shows to her, and then she runs and brings the whole village. That is when his hunger was fulfilled. His hunger was to fulfill the mission of the Father. So when Jesus came to the fig tree, I'm not sure whether Jesus was really hungry from the physical sense. Because he wants to tell them what's happening with the people of Israel, the chosen nation, which is supposed to be light to the world, but they have failed. Now, after cursing the fig tree, Jesus heads to Herodian Temple in Jerusalem, one of the wonders of the ancient world. When he enters the courts of Gentiles, man, he couldn't believe his eyes. So many people, you know, at least 300,000 to 400,000 people came to visit from all quarters of the ancient world to Jerusalem during Passover week. How many? 300 to 400,000 people. And now, one of the biggest courts of the temple is the court of Gentiles. And then he goes, that is the place where he often spent time preaching the gospel to the people. Now, he did not have even a single space to stand and say any word to those people because people were lost in exchange business. They were lost in selling goat, sheep, and dough, and whatever available. In fact, people have all come to commemorate the redeeming act of God in Egypt for them, but now they have made the temple as a business enterprise. And then Jesus overturns the tables, 
And, and he does exactly opposite to what they were thinking of Messiah would do. When Messiah would come, he will first of all cleanse the temple of the Gentiles. Because you know what happened in the third century BC? Once I told that they erected a five-foot Soreg wall between Gentiles' court and the temple not to allow Gentiles to enter and see the glory of God or even hear what's, hoped, what's happening on the other side. And they actually put at least 17 stone plates with an inscription saying, if any Gentile enters, he will be killed. But this Messiah comes and instead of cleansing the temple of Gentiles, but he cleansed the temple for Gentiles. And he sat down and began to teach. And he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made, you have made it a den of robbers. You know, in the last few weeks, as I was sharing about Jesus to people, Many people have told me that they left the church. Because people have not practiced what they taught. Their objections to Christianity is a hypocrisy in the church, and we seldom admit that. And they said they were misguided by the actions of the people whom they looked up to for spiritual encouragement. That's why in Romans chapter 2, verse 23 and 24, Paul refers to Pernus's sin of hypocrisy when he said, the Gentiles blaspheme because of us. You know, I always told to my students in India when I was teaching there, we are all Bibles to people. People are reading us. We are the only Bible, we are the only reference that they have. They do not have a Bible in their hands to read even if they had, they can't even understand. But how is the church responding to that kind of opposition that the world is showing to us? In ours, Sproul once said, when the church hears complaint about Christian hypocrisy, they respond by saying, well, there is always room for one more. That is how we respond instead of saying there is always room for a change, and we do not. And some of us don't even know what is hypocrisy, for example. We think that hypocrisy is something of Pharisees, something attached to Pharisees, and it is nothing to do with us. You know, sometimes we need to understand false spiritual imagination is also hypocrisy. You know, some of us have spiritual mirrors that are convex and concave mirrors that are manufactured by the components of legalism or liberalism. That is what our mirrors are. You only see in that polarized mirrors who you are and then try to, try to project yourself. You are not that, but you are this. You always have some sort of false imagination when it comes to judging yourself and seeing yourself in the light of the Word of God. 
And we always see whether we are hypocrites or not, or we rule out our hypocrisy based on what we are involved with or what we are not involved with. That is not the way that we're supposed to even look at it. And think about it, is it true or false? It is worldly to own expensive stuff. Is it true or false? Jealousy, selfishness, unforgiving are not worldly things. Is it true or false? Poor Christians are full of faith and they are not worldly. Well, the answer is, whatever, wherever your heart is, what matters to God, then what you have or what you don't have. It's not about what you have, what you don't, don't have, that does not. But again, you need to remember, what you choose in life could be an indicative of where your heart is. You know, Jesus gives an example of hypocrisy in Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 12. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Who are the other people? Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. We always try to excel in our spirituality by comparing with others. That is actually the wrong way of growing yourself, but you always should grow based on what the Word of God says. It is not what the world gives to you. Legalism or liberalism. But the Bible says it was a tax collector who was standing afar, who probably has not given any tithe, who probably has not even followed any of the law, was justified before God walked away from the temple joyfully. Sometimes our spiritual comparison with others, even if we compare ourselves with Catholic or Mormons or anybody, that may push us more into hypocrisy and ungodly or unrighteous ways than allowing us to strive for substance. That is what would happen if we compare and strive for substance because we fall into the temptation of hypocrisy rather than excellence of the Word of God. You know, Pharisees highlighted themselves above everyone else in following the letter of the law, but they were blinded by their legalism to see the Savior who was right in front of them. And when, they, when, when Jesus was kind of explaining and expounding patiently before them that he's the coming Messiah, they wanted to kill him. Second, choosing mere, mere religious activities or faith and prayer is hypocrisy. Some of you have heard about preacher Reverend William Haslam, not the 49th governor of 
you know, one state in America, but he was an Anglican revivalist in the 1800s. He became a preacher when the Church of England struggled to restore the church from a secular to a religious state. On those days, spiritual leaders like John Newman encouraged people to trust in the religious rights than in Jesus. So Haslam, who took it for granted that he was the child of God because he relied on the church's sacraments and ordinances and practices, he began to serve God without any conviction, even without any knowledge of the true gospel. So as a, a powerful clergy, he, he formed a very good choir, and with strategy, he held people in the church, at least holding them from walking away from the church into secular world. He adapted Newman's sermons rather than preaching his own sermons from the Word of God. As the years passed by, his church membership went down in numbers because he could not set any biblical example before people. One day in 1891, when he was preaching on the subject of what you think of Christ, he talked about the Pharisees of the Word of God, and immediately the Holy Spirit began to whisper in his ears, what about you? You're no longer better than the Pharisees. That is what immediately Holy Spirit told him in his ears. And as he continued to preach, and he began to confess his sins to the Holy Spirit, not to the church. That is when one of the preachers who was attending the service there, he shouted, preacher change, preacher converted today. And he was the preacher who was converted, convicted by his own sermon. That day. And that day, 50, at least two people, sorry, 20, that day 20 people were saved, including three people from his own family because he heard from the Holy Spirit and preached from the Bible. The next three years, the city and the whole area was on fire for God, revival, like Asbury revival. But you know what? The Church of England denied entry for him in any other church to preach. One day he wanted to go and share that good news with his own old parish that he preached for several years, and he went there, but the vicar would not allow him to use the church, so he goes to a crowded beach, and he begins to preach there about the importance of being born again. And at the end, at least 50 people right on the beach fall on their knees and accept Jesus as their Savior. You know, the revival started in him and in his church and in his town when he put an end to his hypocrisy. You know, we try to choose lots of religious activities, which is not bad, but if you choose only religious activities over faith, over prayer, that means you are a spiritual hypocrite, including me. That means our measure of faith does not depend on our belief system or our religious experience. Rather, it depends on knowing Jesus intimately, trusting in him, and obeying him to the nail. That is what a true following of Jesus is. 
and we will not be able to bear fruit if we are not rooted and grafted into him as Paul admonishes in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 through 7. Paul tells us, be rooted and built up in Christ. You know, most of us have roots in a particular tradition, roots in a particular church practice, roots in a particular way of worship, and then we, we don't try to bend any one of our uh, intellectual capacity to listen to the truth, even if someone is trying to humbly communicate to us. Our roots should be in Jesus so that we will have fruit. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 21, we read, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Nine tastes of one fruit or nine different fruits of the same tree. Either way, you can understand it. But now, how many tastes we have in us as Christians filled with the Holy Spirit. Probably we all love to be kind to others. Kindness, okay with us, great. What about gentleness? Yeah, we are all gentle. We don't offend anybody. We have that fruit naturally even without Holy Spirit. Gentleness, yeah, of course. What about joy? What about forbearance? What about self-control? Are we bearing the fruit? Means in our own life, you know, bearing the fruit does not mean you just go out and, you know, bring people to Jesus. That is not, that is one of the ways that you bear fruit. But bearing the fruit is your own character in life so that people don't have to blaspheme God. Because we are not following God, but we are following some church tradition, but the name goes on Jesus, name goes on God. And the power of the Spirit is witnessing. Some of us are like fig tree with the good Christian appearance and yet to produce fruit in us. And we, we struggle with that. You know, Jesus did not curse the tree because it had failed to be ready in season and out of season. No, he did not. Jesus had probably seen this tree many times in that last three, three years or maybe before that. And he never cursed it, but it was the last time he comes and he curses the tree. Now sometimes I, I wonder whether Jesus cursed the tree to die. He just said, nobody eats your fruit but I feel like the tree committed suicide. <laughs> like, I don't want to live without any purpose. The Savior met me here. Now, Jesus is much gracious than just killing the trees or us because of our lack of uh, um, being fruitful in his, in his ministry. And at the end, Jesus tells to his disciples, have faith in God. You can move the mountains. He gave them hope. Even when Jesus went to the temple, he, he 
overturned the tables. You know, he kicked probably. I don't know what he did. He did not run away from there, but he sat down and taught. After that, only he told, my house shall be called the house of prayer. That means he sat down patiently, explained to them why he was doing what he was doing. That is what Jesus is. You know, being a Christian, if you're headed in the wrong direction, remember that God allows U-turns. He always has that. And he does not expect you more than you could bear fruit, I'm telling you. It's not about how fruitful you are, but how good you appear without being fruitful. That is sometimes dangerous. Falsely attracting or distracting. And even being offensive to people by our own faith. You know, it is never too late to obey him and bear fruit for him. Even if you think you are not successful in your own spiritual life, there is always hope in Jesus. That is the beauty of our faith. That's the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is looking inside of us, not outside. You know, Adam went to the same fig tree. You know, Adam went to the same fig tree in Genesis 3, 7 for the fig leaves, right? To cover his shame, right? But Jesus went for the fruit because, you know, on those days, the Israelites used fig, fig, figs for healing. You know, they made paste and you know, they applied it on the wounds and it had a healing property and it was a major source of food and all. But Jesus is like that. He wants to give you something, nutritious, something inwardly, rather than what you would enjoy outwardly. Like Nick said last time, if God heals you of cancer, how long will you live? And if Lazarus was raised from dead, he, did, he was dead again. What we should count in Jesus is what lasts long. Shall we all pray? Father, we thank you for uh, reminding us to be fruitful in our own lives and also for your kingdom, Lord. God, sometimes we fail because of pressures from around us, maybe pressures from our neighbors or pressure from our critics. Lord, I just pray that you will give us grace so that we will see your kingdom and we'll focus on it and bear fruit, Lord. Father, thank you for bearing with us. Thank you for being a father to us. You sit by us and teach us, Lord, your truth, but Lord, sometimes we are not obedient to it, but God, give us grace so that we will, we will follow you, not in the letter of the law, but the spirit of the Lord, the intention that you had for human being, Lord. God, thank you for calling us to be true to the true gospel. God, give us grace so that we will not be hypocrites and give discouragements to the people around us, our disappointments to the people around us, but rather encouragement in the Lord and give them your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.